0: My love is a paycheck My loved ones have checked out I can't find Thank you for joining us for our eighth segment of iArt New York on Radio Free Brooklyn. The intro music that we've been listening to is called Act Casually by the band More Than Skies from their latest album, Everyone is a Loaded Gun. iArt New York is a talk show that brings you interviews with individuals who choose their career paths in the arts such as curators, critics and artists and like on today's program where we also explore current exhibitions and events in and around New York. Today we'll be discussing the Whitney Biennial that is currently on view through September 22nd. I, art New York is brought to you by Radio Free Brooklyn and your hosts Isabella Gola and myself, Rebecca Major. I'm a visual artist studying masters in art history at Hunter College and a curatorial intern at the Jewish Museum, and Isabella is a visual artist, independent curator, and works at the Polish Cultural Institute New York as head of programming of visual arts and design. So for today's program, the Whitney Biennial is the longest-running exhibition in the country and was inaugurated in 1932 by the museum's founder, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, The Biennial's mission is to chart the latest developments in American art, and we're excited today to try to unpack this large and important exhibition. I say important because the Whitney Biennial has a long legacy, as I mentioned, and has become practically an institution in its own right. The visibility that artists garner by inclusion in it creates a special platform and validation of their work. This year is the 79th edition and includes the work of 75 artists and collectives working in painting, sculpture, installation, film and video, photography, performance and sound. In this year's edition, the curatorial choices by the co-curatorial team of Rugeco Hockley and Jane Panetta Reveal statements of resistance with an emphasis on history, and sort through divisive national, political, and social issues. Loosely speaking, themes in the exhibition circulate around issues of identity, representation, history, economics, class, as well as a critique on Western hegemony. The biennial spans several floors, outside terraces, and features film and performance programs. So let's begin by maybe discussing the co-curatorial team.
1: Which is the first time in over a decade that the curatorial team for this biennial has been totally internal, coming from the Whitney Museum staff as opposed to uh, guest curators. Right. Ruheko Hockley, who actually had a baby in the middle of the final stage of the production uh, early this year, she joined the museum in March 2017 from the Brooklyn Museum, where she was an assisting curator of contemporary art. Her curatorial credits there included the superb We Wanted a Revolution, Black Radical Women, 65 through 85, organized with Catherine Morris, which is now on view at the California African American Museum in Los Angeles through, through January 14th of this year. She was also involved in with shows of works by Tom Sachs, Latoya Ruby Frazier, and more. Jane Panetta has been with the Whitney since 2010 and was part of the curatorial team that conceived America is Hard to See, the museum's exhilarating first collection show at its new home in Meatpacking District in 2015. She has also organized fast-forward painting from the 80s and Mirror Cells with Christopher Liu, the co-curator of the 2017 Biennial. And speaking of the curatorial statement, I Mm -hmm. was looking at it and what I really liked, first and foremost, is that the wall text was both in English and Spanish, side by side. And it's focusing mostly on re-envisioning of the self and the society and political strategies in the middle of the human rights crisis as, as we know it. Much of the work is revolving around the socio-political concerns, like you said, um, surrounding gender, race, equity, and the vulnerability of the body. And I was really seeing that repeated through the works as we were walking through it. And there was also less emphasis on the digital, on the n- new media mm-hmm. in favor of the physicality and materiality and the, uh, the protest, the artist's hand and the individualization of of the artist in the intensity of the process. And the main threat, the mining of the history to reimagine the present or future. And I I really wonder, like, what what was your take on that? I thought that we are in a form of a ground zero right now. How the future can be reimagined from this place?
0: Yeah, um yeah. This exhibition was apparently more inclusive than past in regards to the artist's diversity. Some of the artists were born abroad, such as Africa, Asia, Europe, Canada. Um, And it was also a very young show where three quarters of the participating artists were under 40 years of age. And it did really incorporate these narratives and experiences.
1: Right. But- and so speaking of inclusiveness, there's a number of Puerto Rican artists with um, that had the show this year Sofia Galisa Murieta, Daniel Lind Ramos, Las Nieta de Nono, and Niabia Pastrana Santiago. Also speaking of that in the context of the Hurricane Maria, which some of the work addressed in the show.
0: Yeah, I mean just going back to the Wall text, some of the other um, key points that were made were this idea of mining history um, as a means to imagine, reimagine the present. It says here, quote, a profound consideration of race, gender, and equity, and explorations of the vulnerability of the body. It goes on to say many of the artists included emphasize the physicality of their materials. And it continues, an emphasis on the artist's hand suggests a rejection of the digital and the related slick packaged presentation of the self in favor of the more individualized and idiosyncratic work. And it concludes that fundamental to the Whitney's identity is its openness to dialogue and the controversies that have occurred here and across the country became a productive lens. So they really invited a conversation about politics on so many different angles and also a kind of idea of uh, locality. So you were talking about like some of the artists were from Puerto Rico, some of them were from the south of southern states in the United States. And, you know, their lives and the materials that they work with brought to the same arena here in the in the galleries so it's kind of like also talking about local issues that are pertinent to those individuals and their experiences.
1: Right. And one of the themes that I was tracing was like this idea of Americanness. What does it mean to be the American artists who have or have not been born in the USA? Because those were also included. Uh, those who were born in the USA and don't live there. Mm -hmm. Where do indigenous artists fall into that, who historically has been excluded from institutions like the Whitney? Where do Puerto Rican artists fit into this? And the Latinx identities, the artists from Americas more broadly in terms of North America, Central America and South America. Mm -hmm. The curators went to Miami, New Orleans, Houston, Boston, Portland, Cleveland, Detroit, L.A., San Francisco and obviously New York. Uh, They also went to Berlin Biennial and met with American artists who live there. There's also five collectives in the show that have worked collaboratively. So that's also the focus on the community that you mentioned relates to that. But coming back to this theme of Americanness, I was thinking about Eddie Arroyo, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: who was born in Miami and now living in Hawana. The subject of his painting, which is Haiti, the history, which is inscribed in the Miami Little Haiti, where he lives and works. in And he works in this like Edward Hopper aesthetic, but it's, it's definitely individual. It's much different. And the main subject, I would say, would be gentrification, like how Hashan community is pushed out by the middle-aged white people like the painting of the Café Creole with the mural of the French colonial military uniform uh, yeah. addressing the reckoning of the power. I thought that was a really strong example.
0: Yeah, I thought that was a really beautiful work too. And it's so funny because they look really simple. And then this larger narrative unfolds and you realize after some time spending time in front of them that they're actually a series of works and they really function as a whole. So... um. Those series of three paintings probably would have very different meaning if they were separated from one another because what it shows is a progression of a neighborhood in transition and erasure, really, of a community through real estate interests and development. And it depicts a corner restaurant with a mural that has special significance for Arroyo because it's a mural by this local artist named Serge Toussaint. And he was um a local artist and professional sign painter. And he was very active in that community of Little Haiti in Miami. And as the paintings progress, you realize that that the business, the restaurant, has closed down and it was boarded up. And then later and in the next painting, that it's actually the mural has been painted over and it's been whitewashed and this gentrification in effect and then he also acknowledges that as an artist what is his role in the history of gentrification because as we all know now like artists have often been used by real estate interests as a means for developing a community and making it kind of user-friendly for a mainstream you know more moneyed consumer base and I think that the, the link to Hopper is referencing Hopper's cafe painting and also a moody palette, um, empty of people. Although I don't think Hopper's works is really, it's actually very interested in figures and the psychology of people. But I could still see the why that reference was made, the, the Hopper uh, reference and uh, comparison.
1: Right, and you mentioned the new intimidating real estate development, which is which prevents sustaining small galleries, yeah, small galleries which give exposure to emerging artists and maintaining of artist studios. Actually, those are you know topics that touch us directly every day as artists, and that's uh, those are the the key issues that the curators have been looking at. Prices of studio spaces go up. Curators actually visited lots of artists in their homes, apartments, or borrowed studios in in very temporary spaces. Mm -hmm. They said, and they also mentioned the student debt, if I can Mm. talk a little bit about that, because it's also something that I'm affected by. The student debt in the United States, which is almost completely controlled by the federal government, is over one and a half trillion dollars, with half of it accumulated in the past decade from New York Times article by Kevin Carey from June of this year. Uh, People with federal loans who graduated in 2016 and 17 with an MFA degree in design and applied arts, based on the study, owed $100,252. That's that's a skyrocketing number. The Academy of Arts is expensive, charging over $1,000 per credit on average, with thousands more for materials, supplies, and fees. Um, MFA graduates earn only about $35,000 a year on average, and they borrow more than $85,000. The typical debt for an MFA graduate nationally is $45,000. As a result, many MFA students who graduated this season pay high debt levels uh, for study in fields that don't pay that well. Mm-hmm. As we all know, we both know, I mean, yeah, I,
0: I, know. I don't really understand it at all. You know, like why do we go to art school? I mean, I went to art school. You went to art school. Like, why did we do that? <laughs> <laughs> for
1: passion. For passion. Love. You know, we, must we have very, a calling. We, we have must a be calling. very
0: optimistic people because I read an. I uh, was listening to the news, and the, there's a medallion crisis, a m- taxi medallion crisis, and apparently, like the taxi medallions have plummeted in price and those individuals of which there are like many thousands who've paid enormous amounts of money. These are like, you know, usually immigrants and, you know, working class people and they find their medallions now worth very much less than what they paid for it. And some of them have become suicidal. And there have been, you know, cases of suicide. So, um, and apparently it's this huge crisis and the the medallion industry is petitioning for debt relief from like the state government, I guess. And it's in the billions of dollars, billions. So anyway, I guess there's parallels in the world that kind of parallel the crisis of uh, the artist's life um, and debt. But it's really an issue in America today.
1: It is. And in releasing the college loan data, Education Secretary, Betsy DeVos, described it as part of the President Trump's executive order to address the student loan debt crisis. At the same time, the department is preparing to uproot the Obama administration's approach to the debt crisis by repealing regulations that cut college programs out of the federal financial aid systems if students don't earn enough money to pay their loans back. Mm. Again, working in cultural field doesn't pay that well. Yeah. So how to reconcile that?
0: But anyway, that's it's a terrible issue. But let's get back to something that's more, I don't know, inspirational, maybe. One of the works that I I thought was in line with what we're talking about because it touches on real estate and debt and ownership and economics is a work by Tamashi Jackson entitled Hometown Buffet to Blues Limited Value Exercise from 2019. And what it is, it's a kind of a collage made of um, reflective paper, embroidery, buttons, found photographs, and canvas. And what it discusses is a part of the history of New York in which um, there was a, a village called Seneca Village in place of where Central Park is now. And it was a community that had been in existence for about 30 years, comprised of black laborers at the time. And it was that that community was displaced in 1857 to make way for the Central Park um, development. And She's paralleling that history, and again, it's like local, it's local history, it's here in New York, and she's paralleling that to a current crisis within um, the New York City community and low-income housing where um, low-income, um, usually minority families who own their uh, buildings in co-op forms have been targeted by the city in the last couple of years in order to attempt to take away their properties through a program called Third Party Transfer, TPT, under the de Blasio administration. So it's something that's really been in the news and her work actually helps to kind of highlight the issue and bring more attention to it essentially in a completely you know different format other than the news cycle. So she had pins that and discuss the third-party transfer on the artwork itself, and the, the work is really speaking about this current issue about attempting to dislocate and transfer, you know, locally held assets to large housing development and landlords. Specifically, what the work is discussing is uh, there's a program that that's called um, housing development fund corporations (HDFCs), and these are these low-income housing um, co-ops. And the city in the last couple of years has been targeting them and attempting to take their properties away through foreclosure process. And actually, just recently, one of these uh, co-ops, it was in the news, won a very important lawsuit against the city. So there's been, you know, a kind of a shift in to turning that around. And um, so anyway, I thought that was an interesting work for that those reasons um yeah and coming back to the
1: theme of Americanness, i also looked at the work by daniel Lint ramos mm-hmm. and this specific work maria maria which is addressing the hurricane maria but also it becomes like this giant totem it is made of metal basin wooden seat lamp Found objects, uh, coconuts, palm tree trunk, and this blue tarp. It was used to patch the buildings.
0: Yeah, that was a beautiful piece. And it's so interesting because that blue, it really is the same color blue that in art history has been used to portray uh, the Virgin Mary's shroud.
1: Right, it's almost it's exa- very it's, biblical yeah, color, and
0: it's an abstract piece, but it's figurative enough that you can really see the form of those kind of votive statues that he's referencing, right? Religious and, votive, you know, Virgin Mary votives,
1: and uh, the in, uh, basically the the form has a ritualistic reference to um, to the headpieces and costumes worn uh, that are worn by native cultures. And the direct, you know, reference the Virgin Mary and the blue burlap, which was actually used by the the Federal Emergency Management Agency, you know, to to patch the the damaged buildings. We are talking about the humanitarian crisis. Hurricane Maria storm in 2017 killed 3,000 Puerto Ricans. Let's remind ourselves of that disaster number. But they actually. Counted 4,645 deaths, and it almost equals the number of uh, of people who were killed during the terrorist attacks of September 11. So mm-hmm. the uh, Maria is the worst natural disaster in the U.S. history in more than a century, and a, and the biggest failure of the U.S. government at all levels, from the uh, uh, from the president down to the municipal authorities. And I cannot wipe this image out of my memory of trump throwing paper towels during the press conference
0: yeah or I, when his wife showed up in stiletto heels and like this little military jacket it was like barbie goes to you know yeah disaster, mer- zone. Dis- disaster zone it was really frightening in any case um, yeah uh,
1: so 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 yeah th- those are the symbols of the federal neglect and the colonialist attitudes you know, like with this parade with the stilettos and Trump throwing paper towel was used in in a sketch uh, in Alternatino, the new show on Netflix. I I saw that.
0: Mm -hmm. No, I haven't seen that. What did you think about that piece by Alexandra Bell? It's a 20 print reproduction of pages taken from New York City newspapers, such as the Daily News, dating from the time of the Central Park Jogger case in 1989. I mean, aesthetically, they're very kind of clean. Basically, it's the news page, the headline of the newspaper itself. And then she'll black out certain parts of it in order to highlight certain texts. And basically, she covers the, the few months during which those five teenagers at the time were indicted and false confessions were coerced out of them, and then they were convicted. And it was like a whole media spectacle at the time. And what's interesting about that case is that just to give a little background into that case, uh, basically, it was a a group of black and Latino teenagers who were convicted and falsely imprisoned for assaulting and raping a white woman in Central Mm. Park. It turned out later that their testimony was coerced and that they were released after serving seven and 13 years. So four of the men served seven years and one of the men served 13 years. And eventually they were each given settlements totaling $41 million in 2014. On a side note, I had seen that piece a year earlier because I was interning at the Q Art Foundation in Chelsea at the time um, last summer, and that artwork was included into an exhibition they presented at the time, curated by Natasha Marie Lawrence from their annual Open Call, uh, which was a curatorial Open Call series that they do every year. And I wonder if somehow having that piece in that show and if it was seen by the curators like... You know, who knows? But it was interesting to have seen that piece somewhere else a year earlier. Again, I, I guess I'm, I gravitate to like local stories because they, yeah, because I live in New York. But incidentally, there's a Netflix miniseries out now about the Central Park jogger case um, entitled When They See Us, directed by Abba DuVernay. So I don't somehow to me it seems like there's so much conversation about it there's a Netflix um documentary and a kind of a a reenactment you know and a, a dramatization of that um whole set of that whole situation that transpired and now it's in the Whitney Biennial it feels like it's a kind of catharsis too of these like difficult um histories and bringing them to four. I mean, it's not a current issue, it's something that happened, but still it feels relevant and to like move, you know, to kind of pull it up and look at it and then learn and move move through it.
1: Absolutely. And to bring a new RFB announcement, one of the few ways Radio Free Brooklyn is able to generate revenue to keep our station on the air is by offering affordable podcast recording services. If you're thinking about starting a new podcast or just want to get yours off your kitchen, garage, basement, and into a professional studio where it belongs, RFB offers a low hourly rate, which includes a technician. So all you have to do is show up and record. As a special thanks to our listeners, we are offering a a special discount with a unique York code. It's I-A-N-Y, valid through September 1st. The RFB Podcast Recording Studio is located on Bogart Street in Williamsburg, conveniently off of L. Morgan Stop, and is available for podcast recording seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. And it's also ideal for voiceovers, news content, and audiobooks recording. Again, use the code IANY when scheduling your recording, and you'll get 20% off the cost of your first recording with us. Just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, slash podcast studio and enter your coupon code I-A-N-Y to get your discount. Again, that's radiofreebrooklyn.org slash podcast studio and use the coupon code I-A-N-Y before September 1st. And uh, coming back to our selected works from the show because it was Mm -hmm. massive it was it was was the first floor third and the sixth floors and also the outdoors galleries which were fantastic one particular work that I just fell in love with once I entered the outdoor space was Nicole Eisenman Mm -hmm. the sculptures called procession I thought I found it it to be uh, yeah a very uh, hopeful piece Every, I mean, everyone's path is being hindered, but uh, they may be moving forward. That's, that was the, the, the feeling. And speaking of, of physicality and the materiality themes and the heavy process that the curators were focusing on. And, but also the, the idea of the disenfranchised. But the figures seem to be part of a movement or a community while being dislocated, displaced mm. from each other. The procession seems downroded. Yet they carry on and move forward. There is uh, this tension that poses question about what it looks like to be disenfranchised. Uh, yeah. Eisenman just often combines traditional materials such as bronze and plaster with foam, sneakers, clothing, fog machines, which was really yeah. funny coming out of one of the figures' asses. <laughs> uh, it was <laughs> actually I saw one um, visitor being very much surprised by that. And uh, they use also fountains that hint at bodily processes and idealized figure. Ultimately, Eisenman seeks to pull the viewer into her mirrored view of the world. Ultimately, Eisenman, I think, is offering this new mythology that's reflecting on the world, existential and human crisis, in a very humoristic way. By bringing in the figure into the new context, she's mixing plaster with bronze and marble. And I see ancient Greece-like victorious youth from like between 4th and 2nd centuries before Christ. I see August Renoir references and Chantal Chauvin that meets Falker de Jong, that meets Paul McCarthy. I, I see all these uh complication of the art historical reference of the figurative sculpture Mm. what was your take on on yeah
0: i think you said it i mean she is kind of between mediums and maybe even between classical and cartoon and enjoying that foothold between those two realms and then incorporating her humor and so for instance it was a flatbed um Platform on which there was a figure that was uh, a large, very large sculpture that was on its fours, and the wheels of the flatbed were square. Um, so that's kind of funny, you know. It's a little bit, um, you know, very plain. slapsticky it's humor. Slapstick, very slapstick, but humor. also a little bit dark, you know. Like, yeah. And then there was a bumper sticker on the flatbed that said, "If you don't like my art, screw you," or something. Or you know, like yeah. bumper stickers will be a little bit off-putting, like, you know, don't pass me on the left. It was something like that, but it was like, if you don't like my art, you know, shove right. it. There were these moments of real humor, like the, um, it seemed to be like a cartoon-style bald eagle that was laying on its back in a, in a, some sort of box, chilling out. Not passed out or dead, but like relaxing, And just these little moments and you could walk through this environment of sculptures that were quite individual and also interacting with each other and find these little moments of uh, humor that she's trying to relate to you. um, Well, she's using
1: all these different materials that we mentioned and the high materials and the low uh, bronze with stainless steel and then wood blocks and plaster and expanding foam
0: styrofoam and
1: styrofoam all in one installation and they really balance each other they play off of each other really well that makes the more traditional medium seem very fresh and and uh, and the the you know the low materials elevated in a way and yeah i have my highlights from the humor as well one of my favorite um, humoristic moments was this oversized bronze figure that Is at the head of the procession, majestically making the step forward, marching ahead of the line with the gum being stuck underneath his heel uh, once he's lifting it off. and, And just thinking about all the failed monuments that were taken down that dictator's monuments, you but know, I like Stalin that, and Lenin <laughs> right. that were taken down. And thinking I think of that, that-
0: speaks to this idea of procession, like the square wheels inhibit movement.
1: Moving forward.
0: And then the gum on the back of the heel of that large monumental figure that's striving to move forward, he's being held back by the gum that's pulling him back. Right, So yeah. it's kind of this push and pull, this tension. Yeah. Well, what about controversy? Because there were a lot of controversies surrounding um, this exhibition, not in any one piece of artwork, Absolutely. but in the in the respect that this year there were public protests in the lobby prior to the opening of the biennial concerning the museum's vice chair, Warren B. who runs the company Safari Land based in Jacksonville, Florida. That produces tear gas, which had been used in all sorts of manner, including the U.S.-Mexico border um, situation in which it was used to deter migrant asylum seekers.
1: Yeah, I, I thought and, that, that was really strong work, yeah, and work to, that, uh, by Michael Rak- Rakovitz, who was eventually pulled out from the biennial, being affected by this protest. Uh, by this scandal you know of the CEO of the weapons manufacturer, one of the biggest one in the world, the, the safari land being on the board you know of the of the museum. I think that that's outrageous. yeah, and in
0: fact, uh, before the opening around the beginning of the year, a hundred Whitney staffers signed an open letter calling on the museum's director, Adam Weinberg, to ask for Candor's resignation. Wow! Yeah, uh, right. And so,
1: so there was this work that uh, that we both saw, the Triple Chaser, uh, that was framing the Safari Land. Yeah, and it was
0: actually a commissioned piece uh, made by the politically minded research agency called Forensic Architecture that directly addressed the issue by creating the that video piece that you mentioned, the chaser. Right,
1: they constructed a digital model of the triple chaser uh, against a bold pattern background. You know, it was a digital model and photo realistic environments. It was like the synthetic data set and I thought that that was uh, really a very tedious process that they went through, you know, yeah, to create they, that. Yeah,
0: they did this open search images of the triple chaser, which is a tear gas canister. I, I can't even remember all of the technical aspects of, of what they were doing, but they were created this um, algorithm that can mm-hmm. help identify um, on the web, like images where it's been used
1: right or where the, the gas is being exported the tanks mm-hmm. that are being exported so uh when so when the u.s agents fired tear gas at civilians along the san diego in, in tijuana borders that was in november 2018 the photos showed that the tear gas was uh, produced by the safari land group that that's that's what was the yeah. the beginning of the scandal And the the triple chaser, just to explain the name of the triple chaser, comes from the way that it explodes into three different pieces as it's thrown. Sale and export of the the tear gas, as an interesting note here, that's produced in the U.S. is not on the public record, as opposed to other military equipment. So that's really hard to track. So I think by simulating this mechanism that would track the export of gas was really
0: effective as a work. And then they had this map that they handed out in front of the video viewing room where it showed all of the various uh, locations around the globe where the safari land tear gas had been exported to and and used in various incidences and conflicts, like in Palestine, for instance. Mm
1: -hmm. Right. And uh, moving on to more breathing subjects, I would come back to the sculpture and I really, really enjoyed Reagan Moss's um beautiful acrylic and polythelin sculptures that looked like they were uh, body torsos filled with air and sometimes hosting other smaller pieces. They, they were made me thinking about Stanisław Lem, the sci-fi novels, uh, memories found in the bathtub and the solaris with the body being lost in space and losing the gravity. And also the feeling of dismemberment, the feeling that maybe astronauts may may sense while in while in space. Yeah, mm-hmm. I really love those pieces. But the theme of the show was centered around the body, the bodilyness. So I thought that that was one of the most poetic renditions of that. I also love the one Mutu a series of sculptures, Sentinel, that were big wooden figures extending from the tree trunks that were made in Nairobi. They were rendering female bodies that were holding. um, I felt like the figures were holding the drama that female bodies usually, you know, hold
0: the trauma. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that piece. It was beautiful and a little eerie because it was like these um, organic tree, like limbs were, on the one hand, describing the body, but also... Mutilating it. Splitting through the body. So it's kind of, on the one hand, it could be a leg, but it it could also be intersecting through the body and, you know, made sense as a form and then also seemed to dissect the form at the same time. They they were very elegant, too. Very majestic. Yeah. I like the piece by Brian Bellot, which was the only piece that I felt like was trying to discuss uh, global warming because he used ice um, and apparently as an artist he's a painter mostly but in his studio he was experimenting it was a hot day and he like threw something in the ice box and it um, froze so then he became he started to experiment with placing objects and materials like toothpaste and string and just things that he had in his home into block of water and then placing it in the icebox and having it freeze. And that piece is untitled fan puff. So it's kind of like, that's a strange title. It's untitled, but it has a title. (laughs) And they had a series of three freezers holding his works in them because they're ephemeral and they would melt if there was a, if someone pulled the plug on them. So it it was just kind of funny too it was a little bit humorous that the, that that piece needed all of this energy and all of like literally electric energy to maintain it and it kind of spoke also about um the art world and um conservation and and stewardship of art and how once a piece of art enters the art market all of the energy that it takes to preserve and um, maintain its value. Um, so it spoke on, on that level, but it also could referred to global warming because it was such a fragile piece of artwork and it could be destroyed so easily. So
1: yeah, that, that work was definitely touching on the environmental issues, which Trump, coming back to politics again, because it's very it's a very political uh, biennial, that's one of environmental issues is one of the key issues that Trump is ignoring. And uh, while I'm mentioning this, this biennial is actually the first real post-Trump biennial. So like the post-traumatic, like PTSD biennial, because the previous one was planned before he was elected. So I think that's important. So that we have the work dealing with the racial and gender issues and gentrification and and environment. And uh, I think all these issues really became magnified, you know, since Trump inauguration. And speaking of nationalism and national identity, one work that I really admired is by Kota Ezawa, and I also saw him at the Freeze Art Fair, and his new powerful video, The National Anthem, uh, which was complemented by a series of related watercolors. The video animates hand-painted scenes of NFL players taking a knee during the performance of the US National Anthem. It was a form of a protest against, you know, systemic racism and acts of police brutality inflicted on the people of color. The video itself was a rasterized, jerky, uh, you know, animated frames shot on fixed position camera. It it monumentalizes and privileges and exaggerates the small movements of the facial expression of the players, the gestures, and through that uh, simplification, the existence, the human expression becomes magnified. I, I thought it was a beautiful, um, uh, it's very simple, but very beautiful animation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and,
1: like that. Um, Yeah, and as the Whitney Museum curators have written this, uh, this body of work encapsulates many issues that the artist has taken up over the years, including celebrity, race, violence and politics, especially as they intersect in the media. So seeing the, these images stripped of all the bile projected on, like Kaepernick, uh, he he never played again. Um, and with only the soft strains of the anthem as witness, the viewers are left with how extraordinarily brave this moment was. This is what Jerry Saltz commented. Mm-hmm. I really love that video. What did you think?
0: Yeah, it was a really beautiful piece like you can sit in front of it several times because of the music and the watercolor and animation is always seductive you know (laughs) like it, it brings to fore this childish fascination with cartoon imagery i liked it what what did you think about that uh piece by joe minter entitled the first fireplace from 1998 joe minter is one of the most senior artists in the the show. As I mentioned earlier, it was an exhibition comprised primarily of young artists, and he is in his um, 70s. And he lives in Alabama. And what's interesting about him, although I felt like his works were kind of easily overlooked, it was really once you got to know his background and history that it captures the imagination. So basically it's um, an assemblage of found materials and detritus that he finds on streets, like discarded objects of um, toys and usually metal objects and pieces of discarded building materials. And then, well, he's a welder and he welds these objects together. And in Alabama, where he lives, he has made an entire immersive sculptural environment that he began in 1989, which he calls the African village in America. And it's basically, he just works out of his backyard and he's like one of these obsessive artists that can't stop making things. And it kind of grew into this so-called village that he calls it. It's more like a garden probably. And it's open to the public I was told. So, um, he's really open to having people, you know, walk through his environments, and I feel like that his work translated in the white cube kind of space is probably not exactly the way to engage with his work, and that's why it kind of it doesn't make. It, I wouldn't say it doesn't make sense, but you don't get the full. Flavor of what he's about because I'm sh- after I was told about his um, his garden or the way he works the village that he's made um, I can imagine that it's this overwhelming cacophony of objects and materials that like you walk through it's immersive and it, that has to be experienced in an immersive way. Yeah, that was beautiful, and I um, I
1: also thought of work by Todd Gray. No, the the theme of the show is reaching to traditional materials, and I thought that in his case it was really particularly very traditional. There were photographs that were framed, and they were actually the, those assemblages were actually a little bit kitschy in my opinion. But in the in this beautiful poetic way, there were inject prints with um, with found like thrift store frames that were. Uh, piled and stuck together in these assemblages. They were called PAX series. Uh, PAX three. Uh, uh, photos were taken in locations from Hollywood to Ghana and they were they are addressing issues of blackness, diaspora and the historic systems of exploitation. Some photos were actually commissioned like the Michael Jackson ones from the seventies and eighties. And And we all know about the Jackson sex abuse, uh, which uh, scandal, which started in uh, 1993. And now there is a documentary on it on HBO, which just was released this year. I really like those assemblages. What do you think? Uh, Yeah,
0: no, I thought it was beautiful. And what did you think of the hanging piece? It's um, a soft sculpture. It was a, a kind of like a garment by Jeffrey Gibson entitled People Like Us Mm -hmm. from this year. It was made 2019, and it was placed high above eye level. Mm -hmm. So he created these garments that referenced Native American ghost dance uh, costumes that would have been used in a traditional ceremonial dances. And he contemporized it with his own interests, which are dealing with... uh, you know, gay pride. And so he'll have like the colors of the rainbow or referencing the colors of the rainbow and sequins and certain materials that are very personal to him. And I thought that was a beautiful piece. I liked the idea of moving past like traditional materials and using cloth as a as a, as a material.
1: Yeah, and, and this idea of a totem, I found them very totemic. And first of all, Native Americans were always dismissed from the Whitney Biennial and museum shows of this type of institution. I think it, it's a beautiful presence and I like how they were hanging in a space in the center. And I thought that, uh, the, you know, along with the works by Daniel Lind Ramos, there is this uh, repeated theme of uh, symmetry and rendering of the indigenous culture and, and uh, the, the ritual and the, the totemic form that uh, that I found in, in these works, which in a way is a response to the humanitarian crisis in the world, yeah. which is chaotic. And I felt like this, this strife for bringing the order back you know the symmetry, the ritual, also, in re- symmetry, repetitive. Yeah, sorry, order. To interrupt,
0: but just struck me that symmetry is also balance. So this idea of like yeah fair uh, representation and you know equal voices, right? Equality. Equality. That there you have the equity and the inclusiveness. And it kind of goes back to a uh, quote by the curators, uh, Jane Panetta. She says she said quote, we visited over 300 artist studios and we saw artists using materials from the past and repurposing that to reimagine the present or really to think about alternatives for the future. And Rieko Hockley uh, said, quote, there's a lot of artists who are grappling with some of the most urgent and complicated issues of our time, our country, and of our place in the world. I mean, in, this, in, in our conversation just today, we've only covered maybe... One tenth of the show, or a seventh of the show, or something yeah. like that. It was really, it's very large. You could go back two, three times. Yeah.
1: And the curators also mentioned that they experienced a lot of emotional responses during their, their visits. And I saw that emotional intensity throughout the show, the heightened emotions, like they called it. I thought that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And just to mention one more painting, which Rendered that that intensity was Geneva Ellis who oh look who got wet, which was oil on canvas enormous painting with uh, with this uh, mythical hybrid landscape monumental landscape, which was morphing the the cartoon and creation myth narrative that was rendering Neo Rauch popular culture I- illustration animated characters. And the tragedy and the humor in that character that was present in that painting.
0: And also the palette was very frenetic, almost like visually it was um, alarming. Like it was orange and greens and inverse uh, effects as if it was a negative. So it was doing a lot of visual, optical plays.
1: So so in a way, it's like the new Scream uh, by Edward Munch. One thing that um, I was thinking about from the curatorial statement was museum became the site of the protest as it has been throughout the history. I think with all of these works that we discussed, I saw that in the works reflected. Very beautiful, strong roster of artists. It's on through September 22nd. um, So check it out. Yeah. And we are coming back to More Than Skies and the song, Act Casually, on their new album, Everyone is a Loaded Gum.
0: Stay tuned for next session when we're going to be discussing an artist uh, curatorial collective called Paradise Palace. Thank you.